This last week has seen Trudy and I's 16th wedding anniversary and I'm very thankful to be married to such a wonderful wife as Trudy. It's been a wonderful 16 years. But this 16 years has happened despite some quite large foolishness on my heart, especially considering where we started at the marriage. See, when Trudy and I got married, uh, let me say that I had some strange ideas about uh, what I think my wife should be thinking. One of those was, my favourite colour is blue. Most people who know me know that that's my favourite colour. So then when I asked Trudy what her favourite colour was, I was quite surprised when she said to me, her favourite colours, colours, not colour, favourite colours were purple and green. And when she told me this, I was like, why isn't it blue? Why isn't your favourite colour blue? That that makes no sense to me. And I, as I thought about it for the next little while, I thought, well, she must be wrong. How could her favourite colour not be blue? And so I had decided, or I thought I would do, was convince her that she had picked the wrong favourite colour and that she should change and pick either well, get rid of purple and green and pick blue. And as I thought about this, it really came to dawn on me that I was being quite stupid and that what needed to change wasn't my wife's choice of favourite colour, but was my need to say that her favourite colour was blue. And it's with great thankfulness that I realised this before I decided that I would try and encourage her to change to blue because I don't think 16 years of what has been a wonderful marriage would have really worked in the long run if my decision from that point on was to try and win every insignificant and silly argument that I would come up with. And I can come up with plenty of them, let me assure you. See, If I wanted unity and longevity in my marriage, I realised even then, way back then, that I would have to let things go, that my wife would have her decisions and have her choices, and that was fine. Today we're starting a new series, and we're looking at the church. As Joe said in the intro, we're going to be looking at church over the next couple of weeks, running into January. And we're going to be looking at the marks of the church or the marks of a true church. And as we think about the marks of a church and as we think about and look at Ephesians to do this, we're going to see what are the things that are important to church? What are the essential elements in church that we that are required to show that a church is really a true church of Christ. We're looking at what is a true church. And as I said, we're looking at Ephesians and we're going to do a deep dive through this series at just 16 verses, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And we're going to keep going over these verses and see really deeply how well, what these verses teach us about the church, what we can learn about the church, how we should function in the church, how we are to be, as today, unified, but how we are to be diverse in the church, how we 
care for one another, how we love one another, how we build each other up. And as we go through this series, looking at this one passage, as we really suck the marrow out of this one passage, we will understand what it means to be and function as Christ's church. Now, as I said, we're starting with unity and what does it mean to be a unified church. But understanding Ephesians 4, 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we really do need to go back and understand the context. Now, obviously, there's three chapters. And what Paul does at the opening three chapters of Ephesians is he looks at the broad plan that God has done. And it's a cosmic plan. It's a massive plan. And we see that God is working towards his own goals and his own purposes. And we see this plan and really what God is doing and his reason for it way back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. I'll read that. In him... We have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. See, God is working out this cosmic plan and that cosmic plan is working out for the praise of Christ's glory. That is, he has a future goal a future purpose in mind. And that future purpose is the glory of Christ. And given that, that that is the goal, that is his plan, we see that that plan finds its focus on the church. That is, Paul explains how the church functions in the plan of bringing everything to the praise of glory of Christ. And this comes out in chapter 2, verse 16. He did this so that we might be, so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Here we see what God is doing, why he has built the church. God is reconciled. And when he's talking about both, or he's putting those who were far off and those who are in he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. There was no bigger divide in humanity than it existed that God had created between Jew and Gentile. And what God, what Paul is saying that God is doing in Christ is he's reconciling these two groups and bringing them together. That is the great plan that God had always had in mind for Christ, is to reconcile all the nations together, all the nations together in Christ. And so when you're looking 
at this section and as he moves into chapter 4, we've got to understand that what Paul has been saying in these three early chapters is God's great plan for the praise and glory of Christ is to see the church come together from people from every tribe, from every nation. This is Revelation 7, 9. You know, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All the nations gathered together, all coming together for Christ. And see, what you see in Revelation is this end time picture. It is the picture of the church. And this is important to understand because if we're going to be talking about the church for the next six weeks, we should understand how the Bible uses the term church because it uses it differently. And when the Bible is talking about the church, it is talking about this big end time gathering, this big gathering where all of God's people are gathered around the throne. I learned a new word at our staff Christmas party this year. It's a, it's a word called apatif. An apatif is a foretaste. It is an early meal to get you ready for the main course. Now, it's unsurprising that in this staff team that we learn words about food. I know that will surprise you. But an apatif is that foretaste. And what Paul is saying and what we need to understand a church, a church is, it's an appetit. It's a foretaste of that end time heavenly gathering. See, God has always had in mind this giant gathering for the church at the end and what each church meets and represents Every Sunday when we come to church, when we gather together, and which is a reason why we, it is with great joy that we can come together now that the COVID period is coming to an end, hopefully, as a COVID period is to represent the great gathering, to gather together. That is why we do church. It's not just about going and hearing a sermon. It is about representing the gathering of all of God's people, which we see at the end of Revelation and through Revelation when Christ returns. And so with this big picture in mind, we've been understanding that each church represents the end-time gathering of church. What Paul is saying is, Given that that's the direction, given that that's your goal, how should you live today? How should that affect the way we live in this world? And so he moves into chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worth, to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I'm going to only be looking at the and concentrating on the first six verses today because that is where Paul is really talking about the unity that we have now received in Christ. And his first encouragement, and he says, I urge you to do what? I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. 
when Christianity first began after Christ ascended into heaven, Christians called themselves and called what they were doing the way. And it is a reference to Jesus saying he is the way, the truth and the life, which comes from John 14.6. Uh, 14, but it's also a reference to that the Christian life was often portrayed, and you see the verbs, they don't come out so often in our translations, but they're definitely there in the Greek, and they come out often even in the translations, is that we are, the Christian life is pictured as a walk, as a journey. And every journey has three points. It has a start, an end, and in the middle. And we're seeing the start. The start was where God has reconciled these two groups, of which we were the Gentile, or most of us are the Gentile group. We're seeing the end. We're seeing where we're heading. Is that great eschatological, that great goal of heaven where all of God's people are gathered around his throne. And it's given that, okay, what is the middle? Okay, what is it like in this, this middle part? And here Paul says, what we are to do is to grow in maturity. When he's calling us to walk worthy of the calling, and that calling is that end time calling, he's saying we are to grow in maturity. And the maturity is expressed in those characteristics which he lists. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, making every effort to keep the unity. Paul wants us to be mature adults who grow, who care, who are laying down the lives, who are submitting themselves, who are subsuming or repressing or not giving into their own selfish desires. That is what it means to grow in Christ. And he says, if that is the way you are supposed to live, well, why should we do that? What, what has God given us? And when Paul tells us, he's given us the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, so God is giving us this bond of peace. So I'll have peace in my little heart. My little heart will flitter flatter and it will all be lovely. No, the bond of peace is the very blood of Jesus. So the peace we really needed wasn't peace with our neighbour, but it was peace with God. When Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, he paid for our sin to reconcile us to God, to reconcile you to God. The bond of peace is the very blood of Christ which unites us to God, which allows us to relate rightly to him. And here's his point. If that bond of peace which reconciled you to God covers the most egregious and serious break and fracture of relationship you could have, that is the relationship you have between God and yourself, how much more should it affect your relationships with your next-door neighbour? 
with your fellow Christian. See, once you understand what God has given us in Christ, once you understand that the blood that Jesus shed for you was shed for the person next to you, it should change your view of them as well. We live in a culture of perpetual childhood. That is, we live in a culture which in a lot of ways refuses to grow up, refuses to take responsibility for its actions, for the consequences of the decisions it makes, that always wants someone to come in and make it all better, that only wants the good things in life without putting in the pain, which always wants its rights, its desires. We are like, and often see this, we are a culture of toddlers. Yes, you know, we grow up and we go and get our own food, but so often I look at toddlers in the supermarket and, you know, they're, they're, they're having their little their little hissy fits. And I always feel sorry for parents when I see this. So I just think, tough, tough yakka. And the, the kid's crying because they want this packet of chips or they want this or want that toy or whatever. And the parent's saying no and, and the, the child's on the floor and screaming, I deserve it, it's my right, you're so unfair. And you go, oh, it, you know, it's kind of cute but it wears a little fin after a while. Well, if it wears a little fin at three years of age, how much more will it wear thin at 33? But so much of our culture continues to cry, my rights, I deserve, why don't you give, give to me, how dare you stand in my way? And it it is acting like the toddler at the toy store. Give me, give me, give me. And Paul is saying, look to Christ. Look to his blood. Look to the man who died, who gave his very life to reconcile you to God. Look at the man who sacrificed himself and let him be your model. Do not be selfish. Do not give in to your selfish desires. Whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross, die to himself to be my disciple. It is time to grow up. It is time to put others before yourself. It is time to bear of others. It's time to care for others. It's time to be patient with others. We need to do this on an individual level. We need to do it in families. Paul is saying here we need to do it in the church. We can see how this even works on a national level if you've been paying any attention to the US and watching people rip into each other as the nation tears itself apart where everybody is saying, this is my right, this is what I deserve, 
Why won't you see things my way instead of stopping and listening and trying to understand the other? And so, given that we're called to give up our selfishness, given that we're called to grow up and mature, how do we do that? And we see this in verse, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. What is Paul's answer? Look to God. Look to the oneness of God. And if you were listening as, you hear, as I read out those words, what is the word that is repeated over and over and over again? One. One body. One spirit. So there is a, in Christian circles, you know, we talk a lot about having a right relationship and relating rightly to God. And there is a right, and we are right to do so. But there is also a danger in this as well. Because what we can do as Christians, and I know I've done this, is that we can start thinking about my relationship to God. And Christianity turns into my Bible and me under a tree. It is just about me having a right relationship with God. It's about my relationship. And it comes from the emotionalism of our culture. You know, we want that one unique experience. We want to know that God loves us. We want to know that God cares for us. And that is right to want to know that. But we know that through the blood of Christ. We know that he died for us. And having known that, having understood that Christ has died for us, then we can go, ah, God didn't just die for me. He died for us. He died for all of us. There is one body, one church. And that's what he's referring to as a body. One spirit. The spirit that dwells in me is the same spirit that dwells in you, is the same spirit that dwells in your Christian neighbour. If God has chosen to dwell in us, if God has chosen to relate to us, if God is saying, these are my people, why do we exclude any of us? So the unity of the church springs in its essence from the very unity of God himself. There is one God who acts in three persons towards one goal, one purpose, one hope, in total accord. There is no arguments, there is no disagreements. The three persons of God are continually working together harmoniously to achieve God's purpose. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit works and serves the Father and the Son in love 
all to achieve the one purpose of seeing God's glory praised where he gathers his all people. And it's that, having understood that that is where God is driving us, that is God's goal, that that unity is what propels us forward, that we as Christians are to live in that unity. We ought to do everything to keep that unity as best we can. Often people at this point say, well, what about denominations? You know, the Christians are always fighting and arguing and there's different denominations and we're all split. And there are. I'm not going to deny it. But try and say to God at the end of time, well, you know, God, why should, you know, God would say to you, God, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, God, I'm an Anglican. It's not going to work. So what draws us isn't our denominations. What draws us together, Baptists, Anglican, different churches, Presbyterian, many churches across the world, is not our denomination. We can have different groups, we can have different relationships, but what draws us together is the singular bond of the blood of Christ. And given that we have that bond, given that we have that unity that comes through the Spirit, God is saying, live in that unity. Look at your neighbour and realise that God is dwelling in them just as much as he's dwelling in you. That that character of life, that humble spirit, that patience, that forbearing, that God is wanting you to share, he is wanting the person next to you to share. And when we do that, then the church will come together. See, God has worked so much to bring every tribe, every nation under heaven together in Christ. And that is his goal because by uniting humanity under Christ, he shows his glory to all the world and says, here are my people. They love one another. They care for one another. They are working together because they are humble. They are patient. They are forbearing. And God is calling us to have that unity. Will we have disagreements? Yes, of course. But as long as we keep holding out the blood of Christ and realising that that blood paid for all of us, we'll work for our disagreements, we'll work for our issues. And then on that day where we stand, all of us stand before the Christ, we will praise God together. We will praise Christ together and thank God for all he has done to bring us unified on that day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ. We thank you that your blood, your so precious blood, died to reconcile us to yourself. We know, Father, that we have not always lived up to the unity and the kindness and the love that you have given us. But we ask 
by the power and strength of your spirit that you work in us, change us, give us the character that puts others first, to put away our selfishness and to see that you have died to unify the church and that in a unified church we will live to the praise and glory of Christ. And we ask that you cause in us and change us and to have this mentality that we will live for his sake and live for his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.